Hi, I'm Hannah, and I'm the birth mom. I'm Medea, and I'm the adoptive mom. And we are both real moms to one incredible little boy, Marley. (laughs) Let's explore the many different faces of adoption. Come along as we share our experiences in Adopting Empathy. Hannah here with a quick reminder that this episode comes with a content warning. We want you to feel empowered to make healthy decisions about how you should consume our content. We will be discussing many adult themes, and we recommend reading our episode info before continuing forward. Hello, and welcome back to Adopting Empathy. I'm Hannah, and here is Medea. Hey. We are so glad that you guys are back to hear our stories as we delve deeper into, you know, the different faces of adoption. The last couple of episodes that we have done have been about Medea's story and how her family has been created, basically. And so without further ado, I'm going to let Medea start. We are on the third recording just for me to share about how we've grown our family, like that's how many things we've been through <laughs> just because we said, yes, we're supposed to adopt. And I used to think everybody was meant to adopt, you know, if they could, if they were able or whatever. I don't I don't believe that anymore, but I used to have that judgmental part of like, well, they have a big house and they have lots of money and why aren't they doing this or whatever? It is hard. And if you aren't like drawn to it in your heart and don't know you're supposed to do it, you're going to quit so easily. I mean, this episode, I mean, I have to go into our adoption dissolution, which is where we adopted a child legally. He had our last name and then we placed him for adoption in a different family. So adoption disruption is where a child is placed with you Um, And maybe the birth mother of that child decides to parent within the revocation period, or maybe something happens between them being in your home, like physically with you, like you're parenting them, and then court finalization where they get your last name and they're no longer with you. So that's a disruption, which is not good. But a dissolution is the epitome of not good (laughs) adoption. And it's the very last resort for a child. And and we made that decision for the child. I mean, I'll go into that later. But but yeah, we've had so many experiences that it's taking me, what is the first two episodes of mine were like almost an hour each. So we're going to try to wrap this up. We left off where I was sharing about, you know, Maddox finally coming home. And then there's all these other kids. And I mean, I was trying to name them just in the car earlier while driving. There were like 11 that I just named just in a minute, you know, of kids that I thought were going to be my kids. And, you know, people told us about them and said, we want you to adopt them, whether it was from another country or here, you know, they were older or whatever, and that it didn't work out. And so I firmly, firmly believe that while I think God intended for children to stay with their first families. I believe that he is the one who chooses where kids go. I really do. I believe that he's the one who had the plan for where Marley would end up. And I believe that those kids that are not my kids, I would have like a bus full of kids at this point if they were all mine. <laughs> Can you see me driving a school bus with all these kids? Anyway, I'm like so amused by that. I would have to sit on like five phone books because I'm not even five feet tall. Oh, but. yeah. So, I mean, I know that they're where they're supposed to be. We adopted Maddox and parenting him. He was our first kid. He was two and a half. He spoke 
toddler Korean. And it was so much fun. He was so energetic, which he came home with a huge hole in his heart, atrial septal defect. And we had to schedule open heart surgery for him. They were not going to fix that in Korea and his foster family couldn't afford to get it done. And so um, Joseph, you know, who was in the Air Force at the time and the Air Force covered 100% of it. It was like over $100,000 for all his appointments and surgeries. But, um, and I even canceled, <laughs> we made the appointment and I canceled it because I was feeling so anxious about my kids, you know, heart being taken out of his body. And I had finally become a mom and I, it was just making me so nervous. But of course, I knew he wouldn't be able to live a long life without this surgery. And so a few weeks later, I scheduled it back and it ended up going like best case scenario. And we had friends uh, who came and prayed with us that morning really early before daylight. Yeah, so Maddox is totally healthy today. And so he was about three and a half whenever he started talking about wanting a sibling. And he would say he just wanted a best friend to live with. That's what he would say. I want a, I want a best friend to live with me at my house. And so you know, and I know that most siblings don't get along. I mean, siblings aren't usually best friends. It's just kind of the norm that siblings fight and listen to any mom talk about it. They'll tell you their kids fight all the time. He was about four when we started the adoption process again. And for the sake of, you know, keeping this shorter, I won't go into the kids that <laughs> came up in between that of like, there's this kid waiting in India or Haiti or wherever. And, you know, you could try to adopt them and we did and it didn't work out or whatever. But so from the last episode, you might remember that the first country that was put in our hearts was India. And that never left me. Like it never went away that I had this daughter in India. And that was June 11th, 2009. And here we are in 2000, we're up to 2014. And, you know, India had shut down and the agency was not working there. And then they were, it was just back and forth. And it was just very intimidating to jump into that. But we wanted to. And so we contacted the agency and they were like, India adoption is unpredictable and it's going to be at least, at least an 18 month to two and a half year process. Well, we knew that the China adoption process at that time was pretty streamlined. Joseph's commander and his wife had adopted twice from China. We signed up for China adoption in January of 2014. I watched videos of, you know, adoptive families adopting from China, whatever, trying to feel emotionally attached to it because I had none. <laughs> and um, I just felt weird about it, numb, whatever. Joseph said he wasn't feeling it. We just didn't feel like, I mean, there's no other way to explain it other than we just didn't want to do it. We asked about India again, and they sent us an email with like, these teeny tiny little thumbnail pictures that were blurry. <laughs> they represented like five or six different kids that needed families um, in India. The one that just jumped off the screen at me was a little girl with an almost shaved head. And it said, Ashmika is blind. And I was like, mm, blind. That's that's too scary for me. Um, plus, we're military and we move a lot. And I love switching the furniture up like every week. And so that's not fair, right? Like that, you know, my fear of it, I was justifying it by like, that's not fair for them because they need consistency and a place that's very familiar and all of that. Like as if I know what blind people need, you know, because I didn't have anyone in my life who was blind. And I assumed that it meant she couldn't see at all. 
So we were like, let's look at the files for these other kids. And we did. And there were some that I honestly felt very sorry for. And the social worker said, if you feel sorry for a kid, that's not your kid. Um, just, just keep that in the back of your mind. And that never left me. I think that was such incredibly good advice. We just said, no, sorry, we'll keep waiting or whatever. But when you're a waiting mom, and if anyone's listening to this who has ever been a waiting mom through either domestic or international adoption, it is like an obsession on your mind that you can't stop thinking about it until you know who your kid is and until they're home. It's like for real obsession. It's can't be described. So the people who are listening who are adoptive moms will totally understand. So you just do whatever you can so that you can rush the process. But we know we can't rush God, right? And whatever he's doing ends up being the thing that we needed most. I mean, look at us here, you know. But um, the adoption agency sent us an email back and said, what about this little girl? And it was the same girl that stood out to me, Ashmika. Ashmika, the blind girl, you know, that's what it said. She sent me a video that came from the orphanage of this little girl who was five and a half or five, I think. She actually, she was almost five. And she was just walking around, finding a comb, brushing her very short hair and going into a bathroom where there was just a big, dirty bucket of water and rinsing her face with it in flip-flops. And then going through a baby crib that was filled with tons of clothes and changing clothes. And anyway, it was a nine minute video. And whenever I saw it, I was like, that girl is fierce and I love her and she's amazing. And I also didn't know that blind meant some vision, (laughs) but just, I mean, it was obvious that you could, you could see it in her eyes when she would look at the camera that something was different. I didn't know that was colobomas. She has multiple colobomas, which is just holes or like missing pieces inside of her eyeballs. And one of her eyes is smaller. So that's microphthalmia. And then she has nystagmus, which her eyes move left to right to compensate for the holes or the, you know, lack of vision and where the holes are. Yeah, I saw all of that. And anyone else may see that video and go, oh, that's a sad little girl, you know, and that's not what I saw at all. Like, at all. Of course, I yelled for Joseph to come look at the video and We said yes immediately, but we didn't want the agency to think we were irresponsible. So we waited a day and said, we talked to a local hospital, um, the children's hospital that did Maddox's heart surgery, which is a really good, well-known children's hospital, and asked about, you know, coloboma and all of those things. And we're very comfortable and confident in saying yes to this child. And that 18 month to two and a half year wait time, it, it turned out to be eight months from when we got her official referral, which was April 1st, to court. That was September 11th when she had the last name Abrego. And like, that's how fast it happened. So she came home. Actually, this Saturday, tomorrow, is her family day. So she came home December 9th, 2014. No lie, like she and Maddox are best friends. And they have been since day one. And She started to love Spider-Man and he started to rock baby dolls and they just played together so well. She was five and a half and he is three months younger than her. They are virtual twins. That's what it's called when kids are within a year apart who have been adopted. She's older, but he came first and they're the same age. And we confuse people all the time when we say that in public. And they think that because they're both Asian, but you've met them, Hannah, you know, they're 
very good friends, but they don't look alike at all. No, but they are like, I don't know. Those two have the best relationship that I've ever seen between siblings. It works. Their personalities together just, it's the perfect fit. Oh, it is. Like, they're just, I I don't know. I I love them. (laughs) Love them so much. Whenever we were um, waiting for her to come home, we got connected with some friends who were working in Haiti and they told us about a teenager there who needed some help. And we, we helped him with schooling stuff. And he ended up very long story short, but he ended up coming to the United States and going to college for a while and living with us for like a year. And then he left on his terms. Long story that doesn't need to be shared, but um, that was really devastating for Maddox and Mia because he was kind of like an older brother to them. He was teaching them Creole and um, teaching Maddox basketball. And he was just like really sweet and really fun. And he loved my mom and my mom loved him. And I hate that the world got to him the way that it did, or America got to him the way that it did, I guess the people at school that he was in classes with or whatever. But anyway, so that happened. And that was like a big loss for our family. And we knew that we wanted to grow our family again. And so because of him, we decided we would do a Haitian, like um, adopt a, a Haitian child. We signed up for the program and it required everyone to fly there. And because of Mia not being home that long and she kind of had a traumatic um, plane ride home, she's not scared of it now. But back then she was still unsure about it and she didn't want us to leave her. We just decided it was best for her if we didn't go. And so that kind of shut down that process. And we had already done a lot of paperwork and we had a binder, two, actually two binders full of a home study, a dossier, so many documents. Like we had to travel to the capital of a couple different states to get things notarized and all kinds of stuff that's involved in international adoption. So it was a lot of work. All those documents just sat on a shelf (laughs) for nothing. And that's around the time when we decided and talked through adopting a baby. And we were actually driving home from the capital of Florida, getting some paperwork done for the adoption for the Haitian um, embassy. And we had the conversation in the car of like, what are we doing? You know, how how are we going to go forward? And it's not like we had this clear cut location to adopt from. It was just that we knew we wanted to open our home again to a child. And for us, it's like, it doesn't matter the skin color, the country they come from, the language they speak, the age they are, special needs, whatever. Like, that doesn't matter to Joseph and me at all. But like I said before, God knows the kids who are supposed to be raised by us. And it's so cool that even in the decision-making process for us, because, you know, are we doing the right thing? Are we not? Or whatever. He's guiding it every step. And I can see that looking back. And I know I keep bringing that up, but it's so true and evident when I look back at it, that it's not, there's nothing I can say, well, we shouldn't have brought him to the U.S. if we were going to have that heartbreak or whatever, because I see purpose in all of it. And I see that we really did do the right thing. And um, I can't help the choices of other people and what they do, you know, even though we tried to be a family like that, you know. So anyway, that's when it came up about a baby. And because of the rape trauma that I had that I shared about 
two episodes ago, I said yes in excitement, but on the inside, I was very fearful. And, you know, I'd had that recurring dream of me holding up a baby in a big field of wildflowers and the baby's going to fall or I'm going to hurt the baby or whatever. That was still there. Like that fear was still there. And so we're in this process. That's the very time frame where I realized that I had been raped as a child by my boyfriend, that I was a 14-year-old virgin who was raped. And I had to process that and forgive him. And I think I talked about that last time. Did I share about that process? Like how he reached out and we talked and there was like forgiveness for that? I don't think we did talk about that. So I was just looking at this the other day. It was like a couple of months before we started the pro like all the timing is insane. I had been working through it with my friend who's a really amazing counselor. And she was helping me through my feelings and, you know, years of shame that I carried thinking something was my fault when it actually wasn't. And the guy sent me a Facebook friend request like that week. And I mean, I hadn't heard from him. This is like 2018. I hadn't seen him since like 1994, for real. So I was in shock. And my friend's like, you should be very careful about this. <laughs> you know, like this is crazy, but be careful. Don't immediately just reach out or whatever. And I was like, I have to reach out. So I was showing Joseph the messages. I, I sent him a message and said, um, hey, I saw a friend request from you. Did you mean to send that? It's kind of surprising to me. And his first thing back was, I did, but I wanted to tell you that I'm sorry for what happened 25 years ago, and I'm not the person I was, and I was on drugs, and I was having a hard time with um, life, and and I shouldn't have done that or whatever. That's not why I sent the request. He said it was because I saw that your mom was really sick, and I'm praying for her, and you know I've changed, and I'm no longer the person I was, and I'm no longer you know on drugs or whatever. Like he shared all of that, and I forgave him. And I told him that I could forgive him because like I'm forgiven, I could forgive him. And because he was telling me that he was sorry. And what's so crazy is like, I have zero bitterness. And it was like 24 years of weird triggers from something I didn't know, you know, what they meant or whatever. And it all went away, completely went away, like zero bitterness towards him. And I really do wish him all the best. And I love that he has like turned his life around and stuff. So anyway, crazy story. But um, because of all of that, that seed was planted for like fear of, you know, a baby. But we started the process and <laughs> we went from doing only international adoptions where we fill out all this paperwork about ourselves and then we choose the child and then they say, okay, yes, that, that works for us too. And then you get their referral and you wait for them to come home because they're already born and all that. Um, they're waiting. They don't have anyone representing them except the agency. Well, with a domestic infant adoption, it kind of grosses me out, to be honest. And I know agencies are doing the best they can, but there are just so many people who want to adopt a baby for so many reasons. And there were like four or 500 families waiting to adopt a baby. And like not that many people placing a baby for adoption. And so I still don't know how I feel about it. And I don't want any judgment in my heart towards people because I don't know every everyone has a story. That's what we talk about all the time, right? Like everyone has a story. 
And we don't know why they are in the place where they are, you know, and what they're doing. But I I hope I never felt this way, but I do not want to pray for something for myself that means another another woman is put in like a crisis situation. But there are people who are in situations who choose adoption and it's beautiful, like our story. So I'm learning how to reconcile that. I'm not there yet. I'm really not. But you have to make this profile book and it sort of like sells your family if that eh, it's not a good way to say it. But I mean, it's true. It's like you are making a book about who you are and then the agency is going to show however many they choose. Some pick one or two, some pick like 10 to 20 books. They don't want to overwhelm, you know, expectant moms. But anyway, and then show them like there's this family, this family, this family, this family, this family, which one speaks to you? Do you want to choose any of them or not or whatever? And that's kind of how it goes. And so basically this one book is the key to someone choosing you. So the pressure for what should you put in that book is really high and how you represent your family is really important. And what you put in that book is going to be how you connect. And so I used to think, and I can't believe after two international adoptions, I still thought this, but I thought that I had some level of control. And like, if I make that, make it look this way, or if I, you know, present this or that, like it'll, you know, resonate with someone more than, you know, a different person's profile book would or whatever. So that was really stressful to create that. And then on top of that, they made us make a family video. So Hannah, <laughs> you already know how um, how I am with technology and, I mean, making stuff like that. It's not my thing. And it's really expensive to hire someone to make a video like that for you. So I'm sure my, my video didn't measure up to the other ones because you still have that video. You know, um, yeah, I think I might on our computer. I can show you. Yes, I would like that at some point. <laughs> um, and you know what's funny is I always wonder if like if you were if you were in that place and you went to an agency and you saw like 10 books and ours was one of them, would you pick us? I always wonder that. I'm always like, what what if you wouldn't have you know, we don't go with the what ifs. I know that, but I always have that in the back of my mind of like, yeah. But yeah, that's why it worked out. Because even not... like the pictures that you sent me in the email, like that was such a God thing for out of all the thousands of pictures you ended up choosing, you know, the ones of the Canadian Mountie. <laughs> like, I don't yeah. Know. yeah. That's why we don't go into the what ifs because we know there were reasons. Yeah. I mean, yes. And looking back, it's so obvious that like I didn't have control in that. But what's, hard is the whole time I'm fighting like "Ah, baby newborns they're so fragile what if I you know I don't know just because of that dream that I'd had you know and so I I was also an advocate for um waiting kids in India for the international agency and so I'm sharing stuff like that online and that's how um Pooja and her family came together was I shared about her on my Facebook and her parents um, were my Facebook friends because they're my real life friends <laughs> from back home. So that was really cool. But anyway, in all of that, of course, I'm looking at files for older kids and that's what tugs on my heart. There's this little boy who's waiting, not in India, but in the United States through a different agency that I kind of followed or whatever. 
and he was five and he had blonde hair, I think. And so I was looking at his file and I was like, not thinking like we should adopt him or anything, but I was talking to my friend about it. And I was like, there's this boy. I was looking at his file, but you know, I don't think we're supposed to adopt him or whatever. And he does need a family. So like, let's pray for him or whatever. And she was like, oh yes, I ran into them when I was in India picking up her daughter. She said, uh, it's just really, really difficult and hard and sad what's happening. And I was like, this is a white kid. So I don't think he was ever like in India. <laughs> and she was like, are you talking about? And she named him, which I'm not going to name him in this podcast, but um, she named the little boy she was talking about. And I was like, what, what are you, you know, tell me more. What are you talking about? I remember, so, you know, we have a Bible verse for every adoption. And so, we had received a calendar from the travel agency from our fir- from Maddox's adoption. Okay, so like many years before that, like six years before that. And it was hanging up in the kids' playroom. And it had a Bible verse on every single day of the year. So like 365. Well, we had a calendar downstairs that I used. And the month of August got ripped out. Um, on accident. And so I went upstairs and stole the kid's calendar for me and like stuck it there. And it just so happened that the Bible verse I chose for, for that adoption, that third adoption, the date that she was telling me about this, that was the verse on that calendar page that I had just put there. Anyway, it was just really cool how, how all of that happened. And, um, I've got so many different stories like that that I've got to leave some stuff out that I wish I could share. So she told us about him and and we were actually headed to Texas from Florida to check out our new duty station that we wouldn't be going to for a while, but we knew we were getting orders there and we were kind of excited about it. So we just took a little road trip from Florida to middle Texas, mid Texas, and we were driving and she sends a picture of the little boy. Joseph and I immediately felt like this feeling in our hearts. It's like lightning. It's like kind of how I can describe it, like in our hearts. She told me about what was going on. He had been adopted and they weren't able to parent him. And so um, she connected us with the the people who who had adopted him that were going to end up, you know, placing him with a new family and telling us all of the details of, you know, what they knew about him, which wasn't even like a third of, you know, what he's been through. And we probably will never know. We ended up talking with them and everyone decided that Joseph and I would put the newborn adoption on hold. And the agency was so happy for us. They were like, this is so wonderful. You can adopt him and then later, you know, be back with us. And and I'm like, we would have four kids. That's amazing. Like, I would love that. That would be beautiful, you know. And so like how crazy that this kind of intercepted the newborn adoption or whatever. And it was just so cool because he was from India and Mia was from India. And the agency that was doing his adoption was the same agency we did both of our international adoptions with. So they already knew us. They already had our home study on file. Like it was actually so easy. And everyone was like, we have such peace about your family adopting him. It was just one of those amazing stories that they were so happy, you know, for this boy or whatever. Um, We had to go through the adoption process and they had to go through terminating their parental rights, which was devastating because that was their dream to adopt. And and they were losing that was like a death, you know, for them. And so learning about that and seeing them just really broke my heart and changed the way I, I thought about that kind of thing, because I knew the story, you know, up close and personal. And 
was walking through it with them. And they're the sweetest, best family ever, so incredibly loving, and did not do any of this, you know, lightly. And so because he was in another country, because they were on orders in another country, when he flew into the U.S. to come to our house, um, he immediately became a citizen, and it had to work that way where they had to bring him to us, like, through for the legal adoption purposes. So the dad who, you know, adopted him brought him straight to our house. And we didn't know how old he was other than what was on his paperwork, but it didn't match (laughs) what he looked like and like the number of permanent teeth he had and all of that just didn't match. And just out of respect for him and the family he's with now and all of that, I'm just going to not, I'm going to be pretty vague about all of it, but Um, He was doing pretty well considering, and if anyone's gone through international adoption, especially of a child who's got PTSD and not not able to communicate verbally, um, you understand that when you say they're doing well, that's like really, really hard to most people, or or they may say bad or whatever, Um, they probably wouldn't do it. But for what he had been through and how it was going, it was going well, you know, considering all the things. And so I think it was like three weeks that he was um, with us. He was finally like making eye contact and letting me hug him and stuff like that and um, and eating and all that stuff. And we were on the coast of Florida and Hurricane Michael was out there in the Gulf headed our way. And Joseph said, um, heads up, base command may make us evacuate. And so I looked it up and I'm like, it's a category two. That's nothing. We're just going to go buy some snacks, which I did. Bought lots of hurricane snacks. And I'm like, there's going to be some wind and rain. It's going to be fun. We're just going to stay inside and like play games and eat fun snacks. And so, um, and I told him like, I'm not leaving this house. I will not leave with this kid who cannot have another transition like that. Like that will not be good for him. I knew as his mom in that moment, it was not best for him. Like I knew that with all of my being, I knew that. And the next morning he said, we're, we're evacuating. We have to like base command. I like, I have to, I will get kicked out of the military and lose all of my clearances if not. And so, um, base housing, had to be shut down or whatever. And so we packed really quickly. I think we left that day, maybe the next day. And we um, took maybe three days worth of clothes. It's funny because the kids swept the back porch before we left and like straightened their toys and stuff. And we um, took just enough food for our dog for three days. I think I wore flip-flops and that's all I had. I didn't pack shoes or anything like that because we knew we would be moving to Texas in the next year. We didn't tell anyone this, but we planned on extending our stay. We were supposed to move to Texas that same year, but because of his adoption and we knew he didn't need more changes, we were about to um, extend because Joseph had that option to extend for another year in Florida because he was an instructor and not deployable and all that stuff. And So we would have had a whole year of consistency for him. That was our plan, and we knew that was best. Nobody, until right now, (laughs) I'm about to cry because this is so emotional. Nobody knew that we were going to extend for him because we knew that's what he needed, even though we were so excited to go to Texas. So we evacuated to our hometown. You know, it's like 
three and a half hours um, west of where we were. So we we're in South Alabama and we've got some flip flops and some underwear and pajamas and tank tops and that's it. And um, October 10th, 2018, we watched the news at my mother and father-in-law's house while a Category 5 <laughs> hurricane, it strengthened um, overnight, went right, like the eye passed right, right over um, our house. And so thank God we evacuated because I don't know if we would be alive today if we didn't because, um, yeah, when we went back, the windows were busted in and glass was everywhere and stuff but um and the roof in the living room was off it was like off um there was a random five dollar bill smashed into our wall that we had to peel off on the in the stairway and we did not have cash in the house <laughs> we're like is that our neighbor's money but yeah so on october 10th we're sitting there watching this and and then we find out through um leadership that we are not allowed to go within a hundred miles of base for an unknown, undetermined, I guess, amount of days. And so we don't know if we have a home to go back to because we hadn't seen it at that point. We had seen on the news what was happening in Mexico Beach and we were very close to Mexico Beach. And it was like houses were just gone. Like they were just gone. There were like slabs and they were gone. And so um, I, a lot of the wives that I'm friends with, like we're looking up on certain apps, USAA apps and stuff, trying to look at maps and see like imaging from the, you know, from above. And so I'm, I'm somebody sends me this link and I'm like scrolling and I'm, um, I'm like, oh, here's our street. And so I'm like, okay, here's the first house. We're like, you know, the eighth or whatever. And so I'm just scrolling to see and, and I scroll through and there's a house that's not there in the middle of, you know, on my street, it's like the tops are off, like it's gone. And, um, I'm like, I'm, any minute I'm going to see if my house is there or not. And I've got this new kid who is completely losing his mind. Um, and then, you know, two other kids, like, I want my stuff. Like, I want to go back to, and get my toy, my stuffed animal, my Monopoly game. They were in the middle of Monopoly and, you know, that kind of thing. And so I'm scrolling through and I see, you know, that ours is missing part of the the roof. And, and I, I, we don't know what that's going to look like from the ground. And so in the meantime, we had to figure out where are we going to stay? <laughs> and so we've got now three kids and a dog. And um, I just I posted on Facebook. I was like, can anybody help me? Um, the Air Force will pay whatever. Like they super took care of us um, through that time. Um, God took care of us through the Air Force. and. We found a bay house through an adoptive mama friend, and it was the most kind gesture ever because it was so peaceful. But um, we moved to the bay house for, I think, eight weeks we were evacuated. And during that time frame is when they allowed us to go back. So that's when we saw the broken glass and everything from the ground. And um, I'm telling you, driving through Panama City, and Tyndall Air Force Base, um, Joseph was driving a U-Haul to see if we could salvage anything. And I was behind him in the car with the little boy. And he had Maddox and Mia with him. And the whole time, we're like seeing the places where we would go regularly. You know, so Chick-fil-A, Winn-Dixie, whatever. Um, our favorite restaurant or where they did homeschool PE and 
where their friends lived or whatever. And I just remember him pointing the whole time going through there. I mean, I was in total shock. It was like driving on a movie set. It was insane. Um, It was not real life. And he's just pointing the whole way, like the whole entire way. So we get to our house and because we had those orders to Texas before we knew about this little boy, I had packed up a lot of things like books, um, adoption paperwork, stuff that we didn't need. And I'd put it under the stairwell just because that was the easiest, most convenient place for us at the time. Thank God I did that because that stuff was like untouched. But everything else was broken, damaged, moldy by the time we got to it because there was rain and, you know, the windows were blown out and the roof was gone and all that. So anyway, my bed was twisted up like a pretzel and coming out of my bedroom door and my bedroom door was down the hallway. And then my sheets and stuff that were on my bed that had been in my bedroom were down the hallway. And it was just craziness. Um, So um, after that, we had those orders to Texas because we couldn't stay at Tyndall another year. Obviously, people were getting orders to other places or um, just staying on evacuation status for a long time, which was cool for some families because they were just living it up at Disney World or whatever. <laughs> um, but we had a very dysregulated, raging, becoming violent towards himself and others, new child in our family. So, um It definitely wasn't a vacation for us at all. And we just wanted what was best for him. And so we needed all new furniture. We needed a house. We needed everything to start over. And we had the money for it, but the mental capacity, like we didn't because all of our energy, um, emotional and mental energy went to this boy because he needed more than any of us stability. He needed, um, I mean, At this point, he doesn't even really know us, you know, and he's like, what happened to the other family or where's my mom and dad, like his actual biological family, you know. So we get to Texas and it was one move after another. We're living out of boxes yet again. And that's when um, it was it was beyond uh, description. I can't describe it. I really can't. And um, it's not it's not bad behavior. It's not um, tantrums. It's not hitting, punching, acting out. It's none of that. It's it's on a different planet from that. It's it's nothing that, like, Joseph and I signed up for hard. You know, you sign up for international adoption, especially, like, with Mia in that situation, knowing that she had lived in an orphanage for five and a half years. She didn't have the food she needed, you know, different things like that. Like, you know, there's going to be behaviors that are going to be really hard, maybe lifelong, whatever. Like, we signed up for that. This cannot be explained other than, you know, to someone who's been through it and just go, yeah, like, I know what you mean. (laughs) Um, So we were all living in like adrenaline mode 24-7 and not sleeping because he didn't either. He was just so um, probably full of fear. And um, that's when the friend who actually told me about him in the first place, Kristen, who I hope we have on her podcast sometimes. She says that she is excited to share about her five adoptions. But um, that's when she said, um, maybe he is supposed to be in a different family. And during the evacuation, we finalized his adoption. Like he had the last name Abrego. We actually named him 
his second name after Joseph. So his dad. And what's interesting is that all of my kids have the name or initials Mia because it means mine. And it just was meaningful for me when people would say, why don't you have your own kid or whatever? And it's so funny that we didn't give him that. Whenever we found out about him, we were so adamant about the name that we gave him. And looking back, I'm like, why did I not give him an MIA? You know, the the initials MIA. Why didn't I do that? Well, he was never mine. And it's so crazy because I didn't think of that when we were naming him. I was, Joseph and I both were like, yes, this is such a perfect name for him. And the other kids and their, you know, Mia and Maddox, Isaiah, you know, that did not even cross my mind of why I named them that. And also it happened so fast. We we learned about him. I mean, just this kid exists and here he is. And then two weeks later, he was at our front door. So that's really fast. And then we've got to have a name and go through the legal process. And he couldn't speak. So we didn't even know his name. Um the orphanage made up the name that he was given on his adoption paperwork. So that wasn't even his real name. He like had no identity. After talking with his orphanage, which I emailed them and reached out because of his behaviors and I didn't know how to help him, even though I was a teacher and I've had really difficult behaviors with, you know, within my classroom. And and I was like, this is where I thrive. Like, this is my specialty area. You know, like this is what I'm good at. And I was just like sucking. Like I was just not I mean I didn't even know who I was and Joseph was having anxiety attacks um just going to work at the same time my mom's cancer had come back and she was having surgery and having it came back in her kidneys and she had a kidney removed and her best friend's son died who was like my brother and then um Joseph's sister had a surgery and there was one other thing that happened now that I'm, I can't remember now that I'm saying this, but, oh, one of um, Joseph's airmen was suicidal and he was having to go through that with him at work. And there were different situations that came up with him doing some things that weren't legal, different things like that, that Joseph was having to deal with at work. So, and then his supervisor got deployment orders. And so it was just a perfect storm. We go to the Air Force um, EFMP, which is the program for anyone in your family who has special needs. So like Maddox was on it for his heart. Mia's on it for her low vision. So we went there to that appointment and they were like, we cannot accommodate this child at this base. You should not have been sent to this base. And we were like, well, you know, when we were enrolling him, the hurricane came in between the two appointments. And so we never got this far with all the steps. And he's like, well, we that you never would have been sent here. So you have to move again. Well, we knew that it was ev- with every single move, he got more and more um, dysregulated and violent with like I said, with himself, trying to harm himself. And um, with no therapist, with no help with the Air Force, with no respite for us to even catch a breath and think of what's the right thing to do, with no furniture because we had just lost everything in a hurricane. We had to shop for everything. Think silverware, underwear, mattresses, couch, curtains, anything you need that's in your house. We didn't have it. So um, we had some books, like I said, in our adoption paperwork or whatever. And so um, we were at a complete loss and we had like no resources. My mom couldn't come help me. Like everything was just 
falling apart. And when that friend, when Kristen said, you know, you can place him in another family. The minute that she said that, I had two different feelings at the very same time. I had a feeling of how dare you. I would never divorce my child. (laughs) That's kind of how I saw it. And I also had so much relief for the first time in a few months. Like, like, almost like a, you know, like, it's going to be okay. I'm drooping forward. You just can't see me right now. But, um, and so I reached out to an agency and they were like, there are some times when things like this happen. It's out of your control. It is not your fault. You are in the perfect storm. This was um, Holt International Adoption Agency. And they were like, oh, and I forgot to say that the caseworker for his adoption had surgery and she was out for two weeks. So like literally every crack you can slip through, we slipped through it. Um, I tried so hard to to get to use any resource. And I know that some adoptive moms who are judgmental towards me will say, um, you didn't try hard enough. You didn't have them long enough. You didn't try this um, therapy or that therapy or whatever. Yes, I did. And every door was slammed in my face. And so at the time, I feel like I'm losing control and losing my world. But now looking back, I'm like, we did everything that we could do. And so anyway, we ended up having someone um, do respite care for him that had best friends who wanted to adopt him. And I'm leaving a lot of those details out. But so he came to us in September and then he um, went there like right after at the end of March, six months of him knowing us and then all of these other things happening because of the hurricane. He was so not okay. There's not really a way to describe it. But um, when he went to their house, he was calm. And he wasn't doing a lot of the same things like to harm himself or whatever. And I could look at that two ways. I could say, well, I'm not good enough. I'm not a good enough mom. Like I don't deserve to adopt children. Like I couldn't help this kid. But that's a savior mentality. And that's saying that I am the savior of kids and that you know, whatever a kid goes through, I'm the one that's healing them. That's that's wrong. And so when guilt and shame gets thrown at you, there's that pride that it comes from. And it's like, I was never the savior of this child. And what's best for him, not me. And it's best for him to go or to stay in this place where he's okay. But it looks like I've given a child away one word away and also my family has lost a son and a brother and the dream of what that would look like that adoption that's called an adoption dissolution we went through an attorney for this new family to adopt him and I signed the same paperwork that Hannah that you signed to terminate parental rights and Joseph signed it too for several months for weeks at a time, I would not leave our house. We we actually ended up getting humanitarian orders back to Florida to be closer to my mom because she was then at that point dying of cancer. And we were so broken. 
I didn't leave home and I didn't know why I thought something is wrong with me. <laughs> like I'm, something is happening in my brain and I'm not, you know, I'm not okay. And I talked with someone who explained it and said, um, that this is PTSD. She said that, that your brain is telling you that if you leave your house, you're going to lose someone you love. And it makes perfect sense going back to that moment of we're going to have to evacuate. And I knew that was wrong for him. And it was, and I was right. And, um, and that was just proof that like, we shouldn't have left our house. And so now I'm in a third, fourth, fifth, I don't know, at this point house, and I can't leave it. Like I just couldn't leave it. And it took counseling and healing for me to realize that it wasn't my fault and that um, I do deserve the kids that I have because I think I was thinking, well, I I just don't deserve Maddox and Mia because I couldn't help this kid. So how am I going to parent them? Like, what if I do something wrong to them? You know, like I, it would just, it doesn't make sense. It just doesn't make any sense. And, um, He's happy and thriving and he's, you know, in a new family and it's a really tough subject to talk about. Um, And now I'm a part of a support group with a small number of women who have also gone through adoption dissolutions, all for different reasons. None of the stories are the same, like at all, but the heartbreak and the feelings and all of that are exactly the same. And so these families, a lot of them think adoptions for me and they hate adoption or they um even if they don't they they wouldn't do it again because it's so scary because they were so hurt and um so <laughs> the fact that we came out of that and decided to step back into infant adoption is pretty incredible and um I keep talking about God, but like, that's all I can do because that's truly the only reason that we didn't give up. So, you know, we, we stepped into that in 2020. So it was just two years later after the devastation of Hurricane Michael that we started a new home study. And so we asked the social worker, like, look, we've been through an adoption dissolution. Can we adopt again? And he said, yes, and let me hear your story and let me hear what happened. And he said, that was not your fault. And I would definitely approve your family to adopt. And I think God knew my heart needed all of that too. But we had an adoption attorney who was incredible and um, also reiterated that. But um, I will say there was a local adoption agency we wanted to work with for a newborn adoption, and they wanted me to share my whole life story with them twice, not once, but twice. And it took two hours of a lot of heavy stuff like what I'm sharing today, only to tell me that they have a policy that anyone who's ever had an adoption dissolution is not allowed to adopt from them. Now, they knew before we had our phone call that I had had an adoption dissolution and they wanted to hear me say what happened to them and then still denied us. And I'm, I can't ever recommend their agency. I love some of the people who work for them and um, they really do some good work, but um, that was really hard. And all the shameful feelings came rushing back over me and I had to talk with my very wise husband again about like, did we do the right thing? are we, are we bad people? Like what, you know, 
And so, um, like, are we worthy to adopt again? And I'm learning just through now a bigger infant adoption community that they are the minority and it's um, it's not common for people to deny families for that reason. So there's just some judgmental biases there. But um, our social worker approved us. We were with our <clears throat> attorney. We signed up with a couple agencies and then we got matched. And it was so amazing. There was a woman who was local to where we lived and she reached out to me on Facebook and she said, I just don't know what to do. I'm pregnant with a little girl. And um, we just really clicked because we had a lot of weird things in common that you wouldn't think like just with um, places we had lived in the past and stuff like that and connections. And um, she met with our attorney and she signed the paperwork for us to adopt. She was um, maybe like halfway through her pregnancy. And then we met each other and she was super sweet. And then um, my mom got sicker and she got put on hospice. <clears throat> and the week that um, she got put on hospice, the the lady quit talking to me. She just completely avoided Facebook, whatever, however we were chatting she wouldn't respond. And so um, it was crazy because her OB was actually one of my good friends who years before said, I really feel like I'm going to play a part in your adoption story. I feel like God is going to use me somehow in your adoption story. And it was just crazy to learn that was her OB because like we were all connected. It was so cool. And um, so I had told my mom like literally on her deathbed, like, here's the ultrasound picture of your granddaughter. And this is what I'm going to name her. And um, and so we had talked about it. My mom gave me some parenting advice the last week that she was alive. And, and so, you know, the lady disappeared. My mom was gone. And then I just didn't hear back from her again. She had a court hearing, not hearing, um, something with the judge where she was going to sign some early paperwork for us to adopt. I can't remember the name of it now, but um, she didn't go. She didn't show up. And I was like, okay, it's over. My mom's gone. My daughter, potential daughter is gone. But, you know, she was never my child. <laughs> she was never my child to begin with. But um, the lady was, like, super convincing and so adamant that, like, this was exactly what she had dreamed of happening. And she was even calling the baby by the name that I had given, you know. And so I remember one night I was emotional eating because my mom died and I was grieving hardcore. And I went to the dollar store right down the road, like 945 at night with my hoodie on. And I slammed my bag of cheese curls on the counter and the girl's like, how are you? And I was like, not good. And she was like, yeah, me either. My back hurts. <laughs> I was like, my mom died and I was going to adopt a baby and she changed her mind. <laughs> I was like, why am I saying this to a stranger? But the girl was so sweet and she hugged me and she was just like so like gracious to me in that moment. I just remember thinking like the India adoption thing where India was just on my heart and wouldn't go away, that this was something that was supposed to happen. And it seemed like every single obstacle, you know, that you can imagine and loss and pain and all the things that would like prevent you from pursuing it um, didn't stop us. I don't know. Other than you're here, Hannah, and that's why. But yeah, and so we just continued on and we stayed with the adoption agencies and we um, 
continued to send letters to expectant moms that they would match us with or whatever, you know, how they would show like lots of different profiles to these women. And so we would send letters and say, this is who we are. You know, we're so excited to adopt a baby, whatever. And so I'm sitting there one night. We had actually gone to my sister-in-law Allison's baby shower. She was due with a baby boy in March. And this was February 6th of 2022, last year. And Mia hugged me before the baby shower. And she said, when am I going to get a baby sibling? And um, so we went to the baby shower and supported Allison. And it was a beautiful shower and fun and all that. And we came home crying because we're like, nothing's working out. My kids had even put on their Christmas list for 2021 Christmas that they wanted a baby brother or sister for Christmas. And so here we are, February 2022. And we had gone to the baby shower for our um, my nephew who was born in March. And I get a text from a friend, a Facebook friend that I didn't know in real life, but she adopted a girl from India who's also blind. And um, she's like, hey, can I get your phone number? Is it okay if I call you? And I'm like, of course. So she calls me and she's like, hey, um, there's this girl. She's incarcerated and she's pregnant. And she's considering adoption, but I'm not exactly sure of her plans, whatever. But I got permission. Like, I I emailed her myself just to make sure, you know, before I talk to you. And she said, yes, you can email her. So I can tell you how to sign up for JPay. Uh, I'm seriously going to cry, Hannah. <laughs> this is just bringing back all the memories. Do you remember all of this? Like From my side of things, yeah. <laughs> and so you're like what am I going to do? I don't know what I'm going to do. And I'm like, nothing's working out, you know? And so, um, I sit down at the computer and I sign up for J pay, whatever that is, you know? And I'm like, okay, I'll pay for a stamp. What does that mean? (laughs) Like I'm getting a postal stamp, you know, but, um, you know how that works, but, and anyone who's familiar with emailing with that way would know, but I send you that initial email and, um, and that's that. And and just like with Maddox and Mia, where like all these things happen for years and we're like, it's not working out. And then whenever, you know, we said yes to Maddox, it was like seven months later he was home. And then nothing was working out with India. It was crazy up and down, you know, on and off again. And um, we say yes to Ashmika and eight months later, she's ours. And then with this, it's like we email back and forth starting in February and Marley was born in April and he's only five weeks younger than my nephew whose baby shower we had gone to in February. And what is the most probably insane thing of all of this is that whenever I was feeding Marley in the middle of the night, I can't remember how old he was, weeks, months, I really don't remember, but it was very early on. He was probably less than three months old. And, um, you know, before we knew about him, I just really believed my kid was black, um, that our next kid was going to be very, very dark brown skin from wherever. I I mean, I didn't know, like I didn't have a specific country in mind or whatever, but I just knew that. Um, and obviously Marley's not, I was sitting in the rocking chair, feeding him a bottle at like two, three, four AM, whatever it was. Um, he ate like every hour, every two hours, you know? Um, and All of a sudden, it hit me like so hard. The baby in my recurring dream 
after the rape in my 20s and 30s looked just like the little boy that I was holding and feeding. So he's literally the baby of my dreams. And when we started the Haiti adoption and then switched to domestic just in the middle of, you know, coming from an international adoption background, I had this thought that would not go away of something that was related to our adoption. I didn't know what it meant, but it was a number, 242. And it would, like, it sounds crazy. I might sound like I'm crazy saying it. But I told my friend, my close friend, um, this has something to do with our adoption. I know it was. I was praying and, like, this is just, is it going to be that our baby's born at 242? I was like, what is this? I don't know what it means. But it was 242 and I wrote it in my journal and that's not something I do often. It's not, I don't, I'm not like a follow the signs kind of person or whatever. And, um, but it was like one of those things where I knew this wasn't from me. It wasn't from my own brain or whatever. From 2018 until, you know, after the hurricane and the adoption dissolution and two or three, maybe four (laughs) more moves, we ended up buying a house close to where my mom was. I didn't even go look at the house because at the time in 2019 or 2020, 2019, I don't remember. That's when I was struggling with leaving home and driving because of my drive to Texas with our son and my drive back with no son, you know, and I just had all that trauma from it. And so Joseph and Maddox traveled three and a half hours or whatever to look at houses for us. And he just sent me pictures. Like he didn't send me addresses for these houses. He was just like FaceTiming me when he was there or sending me pictures. And the one that we chose, um, after we chose it, I noticed the address, the street number was 24242. And I was like, Joseph? And he's like, yeah, I don't know. It's crazy, but I don't know. I'm like, I think our kid's going to come home to this house. And um, and I'm like, well, even if it's not, maybe, you know, whatever. I'm just, it's just kind of crazy. It doesn't seem like a coincidence to me. And then I remember we had to get a new dishwasher. And Joseph went to Lowe's and bought a dishwasher and he installed it. And we pl- plug it in and turn it on and all that. And I pushed start to run a load without dishes first. And the time was two hours, 42 minutes. And I was like, I have never in my life seen a dishwasher go for two hours, 42 minutes. And it did. And he couldn't have said, he didn't set it for that. It was just very strange. So anyway, of course, Marley did come home to that house. And you had told me that your favorite number was 42. And, and my, the number I had was 242. And so my number 242, and then your number 42 was our address, 24242. So anyway, I had to share that. You finally got to do it. (laughs) Yay. That was so much to share. And um, I believe that like where I've left off here right now, we've, we've covered, you know, what's after that in the first couple of episodes about how we connected and your time at Helms and um, emailing each other back and forth and the birth and all of that of Marley. I think we've already talked about all of that. So I think I've just wrapped up our adoption stories. I know I've left a lot out for the sake of time, but I hope it does encourage someone. I hope it encourages people, whether they're on the side of birth mom, the side of adoptive mom or whatever, whether it's something like addiction or incarceration, or even just like being in a situation where you don't want to, can't parent, whatever, not giving up hope that that perfect, like 
and I don't want to say perfect because like nothing's perfect, you know, but that perfect for you family is out there. But then on the side of adoptive parent, it's like you've gone through hell and back and you feel like, you know, I was talking yesterday to a lady who went through infertility for several years and her husband was not open to adoption. I feel like if that is on your heart, don't give up because on the other side of all of that hard stuff was this open adoption was Marley and was, I feel like he's like a rainbow after a storm. And um, we did some rainbow themed stuff in his room because for me, it really is the rainbow for our family after a loss of a child. And it's not the typical, you know, rainbow baby where someone has a miscarriage and then their next child is their rainbow baby. But For me, Marley is my rainbow baby, my adoption rainbow baby. (laughs) So I really hope that in me sharing such vulnerable, difficult stuff that someone, even if it's just one person, doesn't lose hope for whatever dream it is. It might not be related to adoption, but for whatever dream that is in their heart. That was beautiful. Thank you, Megia. You did so well with walking us through all the ups and downs that you went through that led to us sitting right here talking to one another and sharing our experiences and our truths with not just each other but like to whoever gets it in their heart that they want to listen (laughs) so and and empathy is so important and I remember Before we finalized Marley's adoption, he was, let's see, April, May, June, July, August, September. He was five months old and finalization was the next month. And you and I had never talked on the phone. We had said we were going to, and then we didn't. And we just had Facebook at that time. It was just private between the two of us and um, your dad. Okay. So he was on there too. And his, his girl, your dad's girlfriend. And I could not shake the feelings of... What if Hannah thinks I'm unworthy to parent her child because of our adoption dissolution, because of the way that adoption agency had treated us, and because of the way one specific adoptive mom, former friend, spoke to me about it? I thought, well, Hannah could be that judgmental person, too, and she might feel that same way, and it's her right to feel that way. I asked you if we could talk on the phone because I was home alone and I knew that I could um, say whatever I wanted to say. And I was crying so hard. And immediately you were like, let's do it. And so I called you crying so hard. And and I said, um, I need to tell you a story. And if you think I'm unworthy to be Marley's mom, then you need to tell me now before it's final. Because maybe, maybe you think I'm unworthy after you find this out. Like if you find out this skeleton in my closet kind of thing, you know, and I didn't want anything undone between us because I know that I had every right to keep that from you. And I know that like, you don't have to know all of my past and I don't have to know all of your past for you to place a child for adoption. You know, that whole thing, like we don't have to go there, but I felt like as a woman and a mom and you're a mom, like, I felt like I owed that to you to like, share that with you for you to make that choice. And also, you know, I just, I was still fighting feelings of shame because of that agency that year, you know? And so I remember that conversation and I told you all of it and you were the most 
loving, kind person back. I think I cried so hard there was snot running out of my nose because you were so nice. And and that's when you said something about being Marley, being the oven for Marley. Do you remember that? <laughs> yeah, I always thought that that was such a good little analogy. <laughs> I was just his oven for you. I was just the oven. <laughs> for me. Yeah. And so I was like, Hannah is an exceptional human being. I mean, I still believe that about you after knowing you for almost two years, but that that really like spoke volumes to me about your character and about the way that you hold boundaries and respect for others. I feel like you are such an incredible human. And that's why I was like, how am I so blessed to have her as our son's birth mom? Um, so that was very impactful on our family, that conversation. Yeah. Are you speechless? <laughs> yeah, a little. I'm just so happy that I don't know. Like, I'm always just so happy that we're we were brought together. Marley has the best family that I mean, even in my wildest dreams, like I I love you guys because you guys are so real. It's not all good things. Like it's it's just you guys are real and genuine and you love and care for your kids and your kids love and care for each other. Like it's just beautiful. You just made me think of something. Thank you for the compliments. (laughs) You made me think of something really important that I want to share. So recently someone on Instagram asked me through like Oath's Instagram account or whatever, what do I think the biggest fears are when it comes to open adoption for adoptive parents. And the first things that popped in my mind aren't fears that we had, but fears I've heard people say, like, what if, you know, the our kid's birth mom is, you know, what if she stalks us? Or what if she intrudes in our life? Or what if she, you know, is mean or, you know, anything like that or whatever. But that's, that's, that's not even our world. And I feel like that's such a stereotype that doesn't need to be out there. But Um, I realized something agencies will tell you when you make these profile books and this video that you want to see when you come over (laughs) that you should put your best foot forward. Like you should put your best self up front. You should like, they don't have to know any struggles you have because they're already in a crisis situation and their life is already really hard and stressful. So only put the good stuff out there so that they can see hope for their child. Show them the good stuff their kid's going to have. Show them how you're going to be a blessing to this child's life or whatever. Okay. So we, we did that. That's what they tell you have to do. And they look at the books and they tell you what you can and can't put in there and whatever. So you paint this picture of a very functional, like a healthy, um, loving, cohesive family, right? You don't put in there that your, you know, uncle Bob is whatever, you know, that he, okay. I'm not even going to go there. I was going to say where was. Okay, but you know what I'm saying? Like you you're not gonna say, well, you know, my okay, yeah, you know, the stuff that's in your closet, okay, that you're not gonna share. Um, because what if they don't pick you because they don't think you're perfect, right? So you put this picture of we're this perfect family, you should choose us. We have this amazing house and this beautiful nursery and this expensive bedding and you know, all this stuff and a and a pet that's perfect, you know, a golden doodle or whatever. And so If you have an open adoption, that means you are going to grow a relationship over time. It's going to organically grow and you can't hide 
the real you forever unless you keep a distance and your openness is not natural because you're keeping it more closed than you promised or than you would because your child's birth mom is going to learn, you know what? You do struggle with anxiety. Maybe they wouldn't want a mom that struggles with anxiety or you do, you know, you did go through an adoption dissolution. If they ever found that out, they would have never picked you or whatever. And so I wonder, I just, I'm just talking this out. Like, I wonder if some people are scared of open adoption, not because they're scared of how a birth mother would be, but they're scared of a birth mother finding out how they actually are because they presented this perfect self to them, you know, in this profile book. And openness means that they're going to be around Uncle Bob at Christmas or whatever, and they're going to know that you're not perfect. And they might regret placing their kid with you. Which I think is absolutely crazy. I feel like we definitely get into this, like, (laughs) but... Different episode. (laughs) Yeah, like, for me, I... No one is perfect. And those little quirky things, you know, like say anxiety, those are things that could connect. So I, I don't know. I'm, you just put me down a rabbit hole, Medea. Yeah. So like, like, you know how you lost your mom and I lost my mom and that's a connection for us, but it might be like, oh, well now my child's not going to have their grandma to love them. You know what I mean? Like that's the thought. I'm just saying that could be a total fear of why people don't choose openness. Yeah. And that we should talk about that because I don't think anyone has ever explored that before. And I could that could like help people become more open and learn how to like naturally talk to each other and yeah, be cool and human, you know? I think that would be great. I definitely think we need to maybe we can talk to that. other adopted families and like Yeah. <laughs> talk about well, I just think at the end of the day, people are real. Like, I don't want to see this fairy tale. You know, I love how you said it's connection. Like it, it builds. Yeah. Well, it's just like, okay. So when I'm, when I've gone to AA meetings and stuff like that, like even some of the stories, like they're just not, I don't know. You can tell they're leaving out stuff. And one of the things that always makes me super comfortable is when I hear somebody swear and like, that's not something that anyone's ever going to put out, but that's, I know, I know it's weird, but that's one of the things that makes me super comfortable in a setting is when I hear one swear word, I'm like, cool, I can, I can speak freely here. (laughs) You feel less judged or like less. Yeah. I don't know what it is. Like I remember sitting down at a meeting one time and the guy immediately said a swear word and I was just like, oh, home. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which is funny because well, I, I try not to ever swear around you but that's I know I was gonna say we never do, so do you feel uncomfortable at our house or at my mother no no it's just different but I definitely like I love swearing thank you listeners for sitting by as we finished up with Medea's side of the story really thank appreciate you, you. <laughs> thank for facilitating that Hannah of course I'm glad I'm I'm proud of you Medea I know I know how difficult it can be to lay everything bare, but you did it and you did it well. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Have a good one, guys. Thanks. (laughs) Thanks. Bye.